Hi, I'm Rajoshi Dash and you're listening to Queerness in Storytelling in India. Today I'm with Charles Mahajan, who is a writer, activist, layabout, part feline, part human, genderqueer fellow who lives in Bombay but mainly in their head. Their published works include Timmy in Tangles, Timmy and Rizu, A Big Day for the Little Wheels, The Mighty Hunter, and Reva and Prisha. They have also co-authored No Outlaws in the Gender Galaxy. Thank you, Charles, so much for agreeing to this interview because I know you've been so busy. And this is such a funny, funky uh, bio. How do you write this bio? Hi, Rajorshi. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me for this. And I'm sorry it took such a back and forth thing. Uh, but from the very beginning, I really liked the idea of uh, a podcast on storytelling and queerness. So I'm very happy to be here. And about my bio, you know, I think this is who I am really. You know, sometimes uh, it's kind of very difficult for uh, me to have a bio which doesn't cover all these uh, various parts of me, silly, serious, uh, irreverent. So I think that's just part of me and who I am. I'm also genderqueer. I have uh, been an activist for a long while. I write, but I also sort of uh, prefer to sit by myself. So it's all of that is me. And of course, I'm uh, trans-feline almost. So, you know, that's, I think, the way I prefer to say these days that, you know, part of my identifying identity is transfilite. And most of the books that I've talked about here are uh, books for children, though I think adults can uh, happily read them too. And uh, the last book, No Outlaws in the Gender Galaxy, is co-authored with some of my colleagues. And uh, that's for that's a non-fiction uh, book for adults. These are children's books. They have a couple of, uh, or a lot of, uh, rather, animal characters, right? Uh, not too many, but here and there. I uh, I haven't actually uh, included too many animal characters yet. Uh, I'm going slowly with that. I have a few stories in writing where there will be more. But uh, currently, they just make very small appearances. And I think uh, one of the feedback I got from uh, both uh, Reva and Prisha and Timmy and Tangles was, and Timmy and Rizu was like, oh, the just cat just came in for a second and then it went away. So we need more of that. Cats are so important, especially in queer uh, worlds, like a part of family in a way. Yeah, that is true. I'm, I'm not sure if it was Timmy and Rizu, but in this one of the story where um, we only get to see mothers, if I'm not mistaken, we get to read about the interaction between mothers and these two kids who become friends. One of them is mm-hmm. being pretty. I was wondering if this is intentional, the way you like, present a queer world in children's uh, books, and which is also a world that is about caring about, you know, having uh, imaginary friends. Okay. I'll take a little while to answer this because I want to talk about uh, these books a little separately. So, uh, you know, uh, the first book uh, that I 
actually ended up publishing is Mean Tangles uh, with Duck Bell. And it's a whole book so for the age group of sort of, you know, younger readers, but like six, seven, eight onwards. And uh, then in the same series, uh, published Timmy and Rizu. So, uh, you're referring to those two in the beginning. Timmy is basically a young girl who lives with her mother and uh, Kamla Maushi, who takes care of the household and cooks and, you know, so who's also a very important part of the family. And uh, Timmy has her friends who she's very connected to, whom we would call imaginary friends, but for Timmy, they're a big, very big part of the reality. Uh, so these two friends are Juju the giant, who's a very shy fellow, and Idli Amma, who loves Idlis, is a great storyteller and mischief maker. <laughs> and uh, what happens in these stories, both Timin Tangles and Timin Rizu, is somewhere what you see is, you know, that here's this young kid who's quite happy, who's very, uh, who's in a family which, you know, where they sit and negotiate, who has a, a different reality also that she lives in. But the people around her respect that reality, even if they don't understand it. And I think for me, this sense of sort of caring, you used the word caring earlier, was very crucial. That, you know, one of the crucial questions for me when I write as an adult, writing children's books, and as an adult viewing the word around, is... uh, how do we also, since as activists, we're constantly talking about power, right? Mm-hmm. We're always talking about uh, the structures of power, whether they're caste, whether they're class, whether they're gender, sexuality, religion, race. You know, we're talking about all these structural powers and how in our everyday interactions they play such a big role. So similarly for me, the question of as adults and interacting with children, what, how does the whole power differential play out? And how do adults actually learn to deal with children as beings who are self-contained in themselves, who are young, who know very little about the world, who are learning, but at the same time are persons in their own being? And to me, that's a very crucial part of, you know, writing children's literature, also reading it or interacting per se or thinking about children's literature. Because uh, I think a lot of the times that a literature that we look up, uh, grew up reading, had a lot to do with uh, either morality or, you know, sort of uh, telling us, you know, a lot of the agenda of adults around us is to, when we are children, is to how to make us fit into an already constructed world. Right? So here's a world which is constructed by adults, for adults, and families and schools and all institutions are sort of pushing you to become good children, good boys, good girls, good students, good citizens to fit into this world. So they want to keep fitting us, which is when as queer and trans people, uh, you know, when we sort of start discovering that we don't fit in, it is such a long journey to become comfortable with ourselves and our realities and know that, you know, they're not shameful, they're not harmful, they're actually things to be happy about and to find that happiness. So to me, you know, all these complex questions also come to what kind of interaction do I see between children and uh, adults as well. 
And so it doesn't mean that every book I write is a queer book, but it is informed by a lot of my understanding of the world. So if Timmy says that, you know, Idliyamma ate the Idlis and she did not, then I think the mother and Kamal Mashi are not sitting and disputing it. or They're just saying, okay, we don't get it, but listen, you need, we need to do something about your tummy ache, right? Mm. In one of the first stories, which um, also remains one of the favorites over time with children and uh, with me as well, is where Timmy, uh, you know, one day uh, wash has her hair washed and is wearing a turban, like all of us grew up, right? You take a head bath and you wear a towel like a turban around your head and declares that she's a Raja and so she doesn't want to go to school. So while the mother's kind of upset that how do I get this child to go to school, instead of just ignoring her reality and scolding her and saying you have to do this, they sit across from each other and negotiate, right? <laughs> but how does this work? How is this going to work? But you need to go to school. And she's like, I know everything. She's like, yes, but you know, there is still more to know. You have to figure it out. So they kind of learn to negotiate with each other. And to me, that's the point of, you know, caring and concern. When uh, we come to the second book in the Timmy series is Timmy and Rizu. Again, you mentioned the mothers. Rizu is a young boy in Timmy's uh, school. Timmy ends up noticing because he's lying on his back and because he's regularly bullied by three little boys. Right. And uh, so Timmy and he end up sort of talking to each other and, uh, you know, over time sort of becoming friends, but also trying to deal with how to deal with this bullying business. And so that's the, uh, you know, second book. And they, uh, while they think they should... In, while Timmy thinks she should call the adults into it, Rizu is determined that, no, you know, I've just barely, this is the first year I've started sort of coming, walking to school by myself. So I don't want to tell at home, otherwise, again, my mom will have to come and drop me. Mm. Right? And so, you know, these are little things which of independence which are important for children. So then they're consulting each other and coming up with a plan. They're consulting Juju and Idliyama and coming up with a plan of how to deal with this and so it's a very simple short story, but again, what I like, uh, you know, what I kind of really have fun with is uh, how wherever you are, you are trying to make sense of your world, right? Whether you're 5 or 3 or 10 or 12 or 15, whether, you know, from your place in the world, you're trying to make sense of the world. And do the people around you respect that? And are willing to sit and see this with you, right? And if you look back into our childhoods as queer and trans people, when we were trying to make sense of our worlds, if people around us, instead of telling us how to behave, actually accepted what we were doing, how we were thinking and how we were trying to make sense of our world, maybe a lot of worlds would have been easier. A lot of people's lives and childhoods would have been much easier. But I think this is the interaction between adults and children that in the lives around us we see lacking. So it's a very big question for me. Mm. Uh, so I'll take a moment to talk about the third book, Reva and Keisha, which is the most recent book published by Scholastic uh, just last year. 
it got delayed because of the pandemic. This is my uh, overtly queer book, I say. When I say overtly queer, it's because I'm not saying that Timmy, uh, the Timmy books cannot be queer. This is overtly queer because you clearly have a family which is queer. You have two mothers and two daughters. So this is a book where uh, Amma and Mama and their twins, um, Reva and Krisha, live together. And this book is really about the small instances of the dailiness of living and how the children and their mothers are interacting with each other and figuring out the world, making sense of things, asking each other questions, dealing with stuff. And uh, for me, in all these three books, a lightness, a humor, a sense of uh, connection is very crucial. And I think that's what this book is also about. So, which is why I'm saying it's an overtly queer book. But actually, when you read the stories, and I've had this uh, very fascinating experience of reading these stories with children, they are not really concerned about the fact that uh, this family has two mothers and two daughters. One of those stories is also about, uh, because one of the mothers is Muslim, and the other mother comes from a Hindu background, and so these children are constantly asked, who are you? But for a lot of the children who were listening to these stories, for them, it was like, ha, so it is like another family. There are different people in different families. But the questions that they're dealing with on an everyday level were more important for the children who were listening to these stories. So it was the adults who were listening to the stories who were thinking, oh, this is a queer family. Children who were listening to the stories were like, aha, they're family, you know, different families are different. You explained this so beautifully. I remember um, in the second uh, episode, Chintan Girish Modi actually yeah. talked about um, this book. And I was now, I'm trying to actually now think that maybe queerness is something which we often talk about in adult sort of vocabularies. And there's a need to yeah. unpack this a little more to think about what, how non adults would stop, or so called non adults, right? Um, would see their worlds. And even in your other sort of books, I don't see a lot of male characters, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, I don't see, like, husband or, or, you know, any kind of patriarchal, like, male characters, which I found really refreshing. And it seems, like, very deliberate. It's uh, almost easy to miss that. (laughs) Or maybe not. Yeah, no, I see what you mean, and actually, uh, I uh, realize it. I mean, I would say, I think somewhere that so much of my world has been, uh, you know, um, I mean, so much of my adult world, actually, has been centered so much around queer and trans people and uh, a lot of uh, people who sort of... uh, were assigned female at birth, but also, you know, trans people who are feminine and so I think somewhere that uh, sense of uh, having patriarchs in a family has it doesn't really, uh, you know, I think fit into the kind of writing I have done thus far. Uh, Timmy is, uh, mom is, uh, you know, Timmy's mom and Kamala Moshi are running the house uh, together. So Timmy's mom is generally what would be called a single mother. But I would say that she's not really single because she has a very good ally, an adult ally in terms of, uh, Kamal Moshi, who's also taking the burden of, you know, taking care of Timmy and 
uh, she has her friends. So I don't think that in my worldview, the patriarchal father would work. But I could imagine writing a book with uh, adults uh, or you know cis men or trans men as uh, part of the households. But uh, I think they would not be patriarchal. <laughs> I'm pretty certain they would. You know, uh, I I don't know. I mean, unless I was writing a story of conflict. Because if they were patriarchal, then they would definitely be conflict with the other characters, especially the children. Because, uh, you know, so then uh, that might happen. But it hasn't happened thus far. Yes. So I think um, if uh, men, cis, trans, or, uh, you know, otherwise come up in my uh, books, especially as people who are responsible or, you know, adults for part of the yeah. Taking care of children and bringing them up, uh, then they're probably going to be non-patriarchal, gentler, you know, sort of versions. And uh, I, I think a lot of my adults are also intentionally and unintentionally funny, you know, but also because they take themselves a little lightly, and you know, patriarch just doesn't fit into that sort of uh, self-important notion that of adulthood. Which uh, doesn't fit into my worldview. A villain of the piece or something. <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking about this recent movie. I can't remember the name of the movie. Uh, Vidya Balan and Shifali, I think. And there was this amazing child actor. And hmm. how the entire household is pretty much run by women. Yeah, I've heard of it though. I haven't seen it. So, you know. Yeah, but I kind of have a feeling I know what you're talking yeah, but, uh, I haven't really seen the film. So yeah, it's a yeah, it's a very complicated the issue of class and how uh, you know mm-hmm. tries to kind of hide the fact that she has caused an accident and then turns out to be the uh, the maid's uh, daughter. So the entire issue of motherhood care is very much like part mm-hmm. of the. But it's rare to see that mm-hmm. in Bollywood, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, yeah, please go ahead. Sorry, yeah. No, I actually remember reading somewhere, I think it's uh, Get Lit, where you said uh-huh. that you plan to have kids or grandkids. And I was wondering for someone who's writing about children, that would be like the perfect audience for you, and actually the audience. So what is, would be your idea of uh, queer family? Would it be something like a non-biological children? Do you see it, you know, yourself as in, in such a role, taking care of children? Mm, not really, to be honest. I mean, I think that uh, for me, having children or sort of as an important part of my life where I would be responsible for children primarily has never been an idea. You know, it has never been part of what I wanted. In fact, uh, I think I was very certain when I was uh, in my teens that I didn't want to marry. I mean, I had not quite articulated my queerness or transness then. But, uh, you know, I was pretty certain that marriage was not for me. And I think slowly over time, I realized that I don't want children either, whether biological or adopted. I mean, you know. But uh, so for me, a family is not necessarily around bringing up children only. Uh, But for me... Especially since, you know, a lot of us uh, who have been living queer trans lives for long periods of time, who don't fit into the heteronormative sort of 
uh, understanding of family. I think all of us are uh, trying in different ways to build up different families and kinship, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, whether it is two adults who live together or sometimes there may be one adult who lives and, you know, you have a set of people around you who you are committed to. You may or may not share space, but you share a lot of uh, companionship and commitment with each other. And so I think uh, many of us are also sort of looking at families which are not defined by either blood or by conjugal relationships, right? So you're not only looking at sexual intimacies as a formation of family. You're also looking at friendships, commitments to each other as a growing sort of, you know, rhizome-like structures where you're connected to different people. And and within that, you have age groups, right? It's not necessary that or now, you know, that I will have all the people that are close to me will be in the same age group as I am. They could be very younger people, they could be older people. So in that sense, I think over a period of time, besides our biological families, we also get into these threads of care, concern, commitment with other people in our lives. And so for me, that has not not included children, but definitely I know a lot of people who have children in their lives. And for them, it is there. And I think... uh, I'm more like the the gender queer uncle or something, you know, who will uh, be around to talk to or read to, but uh, not involved in any daily sort of uh, uh, thing. But I think that the question of queer families or queer kinships is still a crucial question. Yeah. Because uh, it also sort of extends completely from uh, different uh, age groups, right? So people in their 20s to people in their 60s or 70s might consider each week to be connected to each other. And at different points of time, you need different kind of uh, things, right? So I think, I mean, it's not like all of us are thinking about it very clearly, but some some people are, some are not. And, you know, some people are thinking, okay, well, how does aging work? Or some of us are looking at aging friends and looking at, okay, how will this work, you know. Similarly, you're looking at younger people and seeing them come out of families, natal families, which are not good or abusive to them. And so, there's, yeah, there's all that, you know, the messiness of lives, which goes much more than a very clear heteronormative sort of family. Parent, child, grandparent, you know, that structure. Yeah, and this is such an important uh, part of even like queer activism communities because I'm more familiar with the networks mm-hmm. and I've seen people yeah. across age groups. Although I, I must say that people uh, 60s and above are fewer, you know, compared mm-hmm. to people mm-hmm. who are in, mm-hmm. you know, in between uh, 20s to 40s. That's the common kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, age bracket. Uh, but recently I was there for a screening of uh, a documentary on Salim Kidway and I could see a lot of people whom I've heard about just be there mm. sharing their memories of the writer. Yeah. This And I think this can be a good sort of segue to talk about uh, your foreword to the 2019 edition of Facing the Mirror. I do remember that the original version which was uh, edited by Ashwini Sankar, you know, just after the economic liberalization of India. And there were a lot of dialogue right. 
right. stories. Like, uh, and of course, they were anonymous, but I could sense a lot of diversity yeah. in terms of how people are imagining uh, lesbian love, specifically. Uh-huh. Desire. Some people were talking about marriage. Others were not talking about marriage. They were talking about failed yeah. relationships. Some were single. Uh, what was it like to to edit, uh, sort of, to write the foreword of this specific uh, edition? And what do you think has changed uh, since nineteen ninety nine? And I don't actually know if you were part of the first um, um, anthology, but I'm guessing you were, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, this is what happens when you have long histories of uh, organizing. Since I also started uh, being part of organizing around 95, and this anthology came out in 99, and Ashwini as was at that point between Bombay and Delhi. So actually, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, very fascinating for me when uh, Penguin wrote and said that they're doing their 20th year anniversary. A 20th anniversary edition, I was actually very happy because I always found that Facing the Mirror was one of those very rare anthologies, but was also never given enough sort of attention in the public eye. And I write a bit about that in the foreword. But, you know, when it was being done, it was quite an amazing thing, even then to see it done. And now when I look back at it and I think, I was like, wow, you know, because we keep forgetting. Our lives have moved so much uh, with different kinds of media, but we keep forgetting that in the 90s, not only we did not have any social media, we did not have mobile phones. You know, uh, we had landlines and we wrote letters to each other. We barely wrote emails. Most people didn't have access to emails. So all the connecting to people and uh, facing the mirror managed, I mean, actually managed to get in touch with a whole slew of people from around the country. And also actually dig up some archival material from people, uh, you know, who were older and writing the 60s and 70s. And which was quite a fool because, uh, you know, it really in that sense brought me the experience of what it meant to be living lives in this manner. And so uh, at that point of time, I mean, I, I was very much part of the sort of bunch of us uh-huh. who were supporting Ashwini and all the material was connected via letter writing mm. or actually visiting people. You know, then uh, people wrote in a lot of uh, different languages. Some were translated. Some people send uh, oral sort of uh, stories, which they said you can write it down now. So it was very fascinating, the whole process, uh, you know. And it was also an anthology which tried really hard to not, to instead of bringing already known writers, actually bringing people who had different kinds of non-normative experience, women uh, especially. But, you know, and use the term woman very carefully because at that point we did not have the terminology of trans, gender, queer, trans, masculine, trans, feminine. We weren't using all those terms, right? So we were just talking about women, but or women who were different. Uh, but, you know, so many different experiences uh, and so many different stories actually came under this one, into this one anthology. So it was quite a stunning piece of work. In that sense, it's uh, both a sort of history, it's an archive, 
it's uh, also a way of doing anthologies differently mm-hmm. but it's also about that time you know and yes i was part of it uh, very much part of sort of you know because we had uh, a few people who would write to us in sri sangam and so uh, we wrote to them saying okay such and such person is working on such a book would you like to be part of it that we will give her your address or you can or we can give you her address and you write to her and so you know there was all sorts of levels of writing to people and asking consent and then putting people in touch with each other mm-hmm. so there was also that and uh, i also had a few pieces in the book in different names as i think shalini at some point in sakshi shalini at another point because i was not able to articulate what my issue with my name precisely was which i learned later had to do with the gender specificity of my name but i was trying to figure out to be a name that would work for me mm-hmm. so so there was that as well but uh, <laughs> your second question is that what do you think of it today right yeah like uh, i think one i think you do right uh, at one point that you don't think such an anthology would be possible now and i was yeah. wondering whether that's because of the political environment because it's it also came right after the entire shiv sena attack on fire and it i think it's briefly yeah. ashwini sankar mentions it in the preface of her novel yeah So I was wondering what what did you mean by that? Was it the political environment, or was it more about the categories and uh, you know different categories, nuanced categories that have come up, and people use that vocabulary very often nowadays in activist. Mm. I think yeah, I think that what I mean, you know, when one looks back, and even when I was looking back at this book, you realize that how early in the organizing of uh, queer activism and movements this book came out right yeah. i mean uh, the campaigns were just starting and uh, you know the first campaigns against 377 were starting the sort of first uh, uh, petition had not been yet filed which was filed in 2001 uh, in the delhi uh, high court and all of that was still to come so in that sense it was a time where we started thinking of decriminalization we started thinking of a lot of things and started campaigns but there was also our terms were then lesbian bisexual gay hijra kothi at best right so our our reach was also limited to people you knew that there were people who were living very different lives than heteronormative lives but reaching people and reaching especially those assigned female at birth was very difficult right you had to uh, do a lot of things to be able to reach them i think what in the last 20 plus years has happened 23 now is that one you know when we used to try and write to papers at that point it was almost scandalous the coverage of fire was also scandalous you know <laughs> uh, it was also a bit like lesbians i mean the chef said at that point said uh, you know if women start uh, being happy with each other then why who will marry men and we were like yeah exactly you know thank you that uh, you said this for us <laughs> but uh, you know that was then i think what happened in these 20 years is much changed 
I don't think in 99, if you'd asked me that, would I see Section 377 changing in my lifetime? I would have said, no way. This country is going to take 50 years. But we've seen this happen, not just once, but twice, right? You have the Delhi High Court, you have the Supreme Court, then you have the Supreme Court again. You had something as amazing as NALSA happen, right? Of course, the trans bill did not live up to the promise of NALSA judgment, but you have that. You have an immensely supportive media, uh, especially English media, but also a lot of different languages media. You look around today, you see that your pride march is happening in small towns. So you have a kind of visibility and openness. You have that uh, in a way that you could not imagine then. You have people meeting each other through the net, people li- li- living digital lives all the time. So all this has shifted a lot. So when you say that, will you be able to write an anthology today which says, lesbian writing from India, mm. you'd also want to question why would you want to put that, right? right? Why would you want it? Why not queer writing? Why just India? You know, do you want it from mainland India or are you talking about the Northeast as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you say lesbian, what do you mean? Obviously, you know, you... So, the question now will become that what would this anthology serve a purpose? Maybe it is still relevant, maybe it is not, but I think our complexity of our identities and the complexities of the way in which different articulations have been made over time Mm -hmm. has actually uh, made everything much more rich. So in that sense, you would have uh, a more complex uh, conversation around it, right? So when... uh, Akhil, uh, Katyal and Aditi Angedas do their anthology, it is actually, uh, what do they call it? Uh, queer and trans writing or just queer writing? Yeah, uh, a wall that belongs to us. Yeah, yeah. Queer poetry uh, from South Queer poetry. So it's queer, right? Because it's also become easier to use queer and trans because there's such huge umbrella terms, right? And so lesbian has become one very specific term of a particular kind. But within itself also its scope has changed. Mm. Right? So even if you say women who love women, you'd have uh, trans women who are lesbian, you have cis women who are lesbian, and they're all, you know, many people are using that term. A lot of people who used to use that term don't use it anymore because it doesn't fit. A lot of us call ourselves queer. So it's, I think it's a very... You won't have this, but you'd have many different types of policies, is what I'm saying. That this, in that sense, works for that particular time. Mm. Although I do remember uh, in Sukhankar actually talking about the term extensively, uh, and which I really liked, you know, not mm. just mm. the term lesbian, but also what is writing. And, yeah. Uh, and she... Yeah. She doesn't really mention caste, if I'm uh, unless I'm mistaken. But then she does talk about how writing is determined by a certain kind of, you know, uh, capital. So that it's very like mm. obvious that it's coming from a certain position, which I I don't see. I didn't see that nuance in other anthologies that came around, mm. you know, which which were of course popular, but it was like it seemed very well thought out the entire yeah. project. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, I mean, also because uh, I think one wasn't using past as a lens as clearly. 
I mean, I think one should acknowledge that also. So class was more the lens used, but also one saw that there was this, you know, you didn't want it to become a world of English-speaking urban where uh, lesbian women, right, who were writing. So uh, I think there was a lot of effort to look at uh, different people. I mean, there were also, if you look, there are a lot of people with disabilities writing in this book. Yes. Which uh, you might uh, or might not, I'm not sure if they're there in the contemporary, in what was contemporary to this, the gay poetry anthology uh, edited by Hashan Merchant. Mm. See, so uh, what the other anthologies did was take already published material or only well-known people who were writers mm-hmm. and published them. This book, by interrogating writing and interrogating uh, both uh, lesbian and what it meant to be lesbian and writing itself and what is publishable, what is not, actually opened the space for a lot of people to write. And partially it also came from the place that there were hardly any well-known lesbian writers, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, there wasn't, uh, there were very few people. Uh, Suniti Namjo, she was there, but she was living outside. She wasn't living here. Yeah. So then you are also sort of looking, okay, you know, we know that this experience exists. We know that people want to write about it. We know that some people may have already written about it, but how do we bring it together? So I think in that sense, in doing that, and also for coming from a very feminist politics of looking at diversity and looking at writing as something that, or looking at stories that everybody has to tell and not just those who have the privilege of a particular education. Right? That lives of various kinds are worth writing about and talking about. I think it comes from that sort of politics as well. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, it does something quite different. I'm itching to ask you this question because you mentioned this earlier the distinction between economic liberalization and liberal thought. And mm. in a way, uh, this just came after the economic liberalization of India, which, if I'm not mistaken, was led by Manmohan Singh. Uh, do you see that kind of uh, those distinction collapsing with the coming of Penguin India and other publishers and kind of proliferation of all these literature around sexuality? Or do you think it is not something that... Did you, basically, what I'm trying to understand is that is it just a coincidence that all these books just came about and so much discussions were happening around sexuality? You know, uh, you mean in the late nineties? Yeah, yeah. Hmm, that's an interesting thing to uh, say because I mean, if you're talking of economic liberalization, I think uh, yes, that was coming here, and that was slowly going to create a class of people, you know, which uh, is very evident today. Uh, yeah. So I'm saying in the nineties, I think the liberalization was only economic. I think the liberalization of ideas, that's what I was trying to say to you earlier, that one, we have to look at the economic liberalization as one quote said. Partially connected to it, but not wholly connected to it, is a whole thing of liberal ideas, right? Where you see liberal ideas in the West, for example. Uh, in India, we've had a history of very progressive and radical thought. Right. Not necessarily under the rubric of liberal thought, right? 
uh, in all our movements, whether it's the feminist movement, whether it's the trade union movement, whether it is the anti-caste movement, they all have been progressive and radical because they have always been against structures, right? They've never been pro-institutions uh, and structures. So whether it's about economy, whether it's about uh, the government, whether it is around uh, structures of caste, uh, you know, all of that, you've been against that. So, or corporates. So, all your movements have been radical and progressive, which is a very different space from liberal, which is about using an economy to uh, sort of uh, let there be more space for different kinds of people, right? Which I think if you see that kind of space, it gets created actually a little later. You know, when the Delhi High Court judgment came in 2009, you see that by then the media is very queer friendly. So I'm saying that that economic changes of that kind actually also reflected in the thought changes. So that was a liberal media. That was not a progressive or a radical media right. which did that. It was a media in 2009. The media was something you had a proliferation of channels due to the economic liberalization. You had a lot of, uh, you didn't have just the state media. You had a lot of corporate controlled media, but you also had a lot of channels uh, which uh, sort of connected with the international channels and so on and so forth. And so you had a whole uh, range of journalists who were much more open and liberal about the politics of sexuality. Right. So when the Delhi High Court said that, uh, you know, Delhi High Court's judgment in itself was very radical and astonishing. Now, I wouldn't call that a liberal judgment. It was a very radical shift of thought, what that judgment did. And I think that the way the media re- connect, uh, sort of took it up was to me a moment of re- liberal sort of effect, the effect of liberalism in society where the media was so supportive. But of course, because we're talking about this con- country where all sent every so many complex thoughts exist simultaneously, the backlash was huge, right? Yeah. From a lot of religious institutions, a lot of people, a lot of uh, you know spokespeople, uh, self-appointed spokespeople of different uh, communities, there, there was also a backlash which was huge, telling us very much that economic liberalization had not meant a change in thought as far as uh, gender, sexuality, and we also see in other ways caste or religion functions. Yeah, yeah. Right? So economic liberalization meant that there would be a little more space to be different, there will be more things available, but it also sort of retained the hegemony or in fact strengthened it almost, no? Mm. Of some people. Yeah. And in a very funny way, if you look at it today, you move another 10 years in the future and come here today, we are looking at a whole sort of uh, Hindu religious uh, fair uh, sort of uh, existence, right? So you're also looking at that, which in today's India does not feel like a contradiction. You know what I mean? Yeah. That in 2009, it would be a contradiction. Today, it isn't. You have a lot of companies today wanting to be part of pride parades and so on and so forth. And this is sheer (coughs) liberalism of both kinds. 
economic and that of thought mm-hmm. because uh, it's the pink rupee as well as it's the sort of uh, that queerness is cool and you know we are supportive of queer people which uh, does it mean that they will actually change uh, be part of structural change which we need the radical change that we need society to do uh definitely not does that mean that uh, you know how people look at caste has changed definitely not mm. how people look at uh, religion has changed definitely not so you know all that remains yeah and i feel like anthology is such a great uh, medium to bring uh, diverse uh, voices and radical voices together but also voices which are maybe liberal but not radical so mm-hmm. i feel like it can be really messy space yeah. to be in yeah absolutely and also i think uh, you know facing the mirror is even messier because uh, what was set out as a thing was just about experience people writing about their lives there was uh, the politics was of how to get the voices together but there was no uh, you know cleaning up of people's lives to present them in a acceptable manner right so with all the contradictions uh, you have the stories uh, in the book where today somebody might uh, look at it and say oh you know that's violence and you think like yeah this is you know it's there and there's uh, no attempt at air brushing it or making it uh, you know more acceptable or palatable you were part of labia which was in a way founded uh, around i think mid 90s as mm-hmm. peace sangam if i'm not mistaken uh, mm-hmm. so like a time when a lot of these organizations were really you know uh, becoming very active and of course staff for equality came later actually i spoke to pavan hal a couple of huh. days back and he was actually also sort of talking about how he, they were trying to sensitize the media because uh, in they were really ho- very homophobic and transphobic you know articulations in regional media here in Kolkata and mm. how they were trying to address that so i know you actually co-authored the book no outlaws in the gender galaxy and i'm wondering if this was a part of your work that you did with uh, labia or was this something which came out of you know networks which were beyond the organizations you know you're right that sri sangam uh, which later became labia appear feminist lgbt collective uh that's the full name uh started in 95 and yeah so that was a time when you know just the idea of meeting other people like you was seriously real you know because here we were uh so to each one of us and i think sadly that experience a lot of people have today as well which is why i keep on saying that things are simultaneous but hopefully people young people today while growing up may have access to a little bit but again that depends on your past your class your location you know where you are at accessibility is always been uh, bound by so many things you know there has never been uh, open access i mean we all know that access to anything all resources has always been sort of uh, controlled by what your location is in different ways but at that point of time really when i think the few of us met there was so much energy just knowing oh my god there are six of us in the same room we should really reach out to more people and figure out a way of talking about this 
and uh, so yes that's how labia started as three sangam and over time grew and uh, you know then as you said clearly there were lots of other organizations there was sakhi in delhi before us there was safo which came later and then in bangalore then in uh, kerala so there were a lot of uh, and this i'm talking only about the lbt lesbian bisexual and trans people's mm-hmm. organizations you know if you looked at a lot of the work being done by hiv and gay men and in, so that was another huge thing so i think that that was really uh, a time of much sort of opening out of people generally trying to reach out to each other in various forms so in that sense uh, it uh, was simultaneous with a lot of these books coming out as well at that point so but to come to gender galaxy no outlaws in the gender galaxy i think this uh, we started working on it around 2009 so actually it started with a process in labia where when we were talking to each other we kept on feeling that while we've been talking about sexuality so much and you know talking about that we have many nuances of it we are not able to we don't have anything which talks about gender very clearly and we ourselves are not able to figure out uh, gender in a very clear way the what was happening for example since the 90s you always had queer couples running right for a lot of uh, people assigned male at birth you had uh, cruising areas or for a lot of uh, trans feminine people you had uh, at least you knew of some nidras who existed in your city or you know you could run away to or something but when it came to people assigned female at birth there was absolutely no public knowledge of where you could go but at the same time what we found out through the 90s and later and this happens even today is a case of two people running away together right and very often we would call them lesbian couples running away because that was the language in the 90s we didn't have a language very often one of, of, of them would not be woman identified or one of them would say i'm the butch you know this is what the language you had or one would say ki mai shirt pant pant so in that sense slowly as more and more people came also we started all of us also started thinking we also we had our own discomforts with our own gender right so i remember in the 90s when some of us would talk it be like i don't really feel like a woman i feel like a different woman but what does it mean right it is that i'm not feeling like a woman but i don't have the words to say because some of us were like i don't feel like a man some were very clear that actually i'm a boy i'm a man so you know as all these discussions do more and more people joined and we started having these discussions we felt in labia that we really needed to get to see how people lived their genders whether they had access to a language or not how did gender affect our lives from birth to where we were today and so that's how the idea of the study was born because the it was like all the issues around gender that all of us were dealing with and people around us were dealing with and we really wanted to talk about it and to understand it and also sort of be able to share that understanding with more people so that's how it came about and then uh, uh we a bunch of us decided that we'd work on it and take it on further so we there were 11 people who actually did the research 
and uh, you know at some point if you ever want to talk about methodology you can talk about it separately because it's a very fascinating methodology i think yeah. i read it before you know thinking through my own field work like especially I, uh, interviews are structured you know yeah yeah you plan for, especially because this is where you are doing the work not alone but with other people so of course there's more much more coordination that is required yeah absolutely absolutely not just coordination so also because you know we went we did it as labia but then we had a lot of contacts with groups in other places and so we wrote to them and said listen this is what we want to do do you think people will be interested and wrote back and so this was kind of and we went through many rounds of trying to figure out what we wanted to do and you know we started with thinking should we only talk to trans people then we were like how what if people don't have access to the language of trans what if people are not able to articulate it finally we said okay we'll talk to people who've been assigned gender female at birth because we tried to narrow it down you know and say okay but we'll talk to them about their gender through life but we went for a lot of rounds you know we even went for a whole round of asking each other and ourselves do you i think i should be part of this study and then we did interviews with each other to see how it would work so we went for a lot we uh, did some tests with other friends who identified trans to say okay how would you feel with this kind of question and so on so forth so finally it became very long uh, life narrative for gender interviews but so we were able to do that in different locations around the country because i think by then we had enough contacts there was a sense of uh, you know a lot of uh, trust and connect with labia as a group per se and with many of us individuals who'd been part of it for a long while so i think uh, the kind of conversations we had with people were very generous very wonderful and very meaningful conversations at the same time we were very clear that we would not identify people we would uh, not uh, make sure that people aren't identified even though a lot of people said i don't care if my name is there we like no we going to try and do it for everybody so we did all of that and we were very clear that we won't publish these as narratives mm. so when we finally came down to the so we published a report first called breaking the binary mm. and that uh, report was published in english and hindi and we actually went back to all the cities and towns where we had done the interviews also to see we didn't want to identify people and say we want to talk to x y and z because they were anonymous so what we did was we did like little release programs in five six cities and towns so basically sort of giving back to the communities where we got interviews from and had discussions with because we also had some focus group discussions on understanding gender with groups mm-hmm. so we did that and then four of us thought because we still had so much material that we couldn't do in a shorter report then four of us decided to actually sit and work on a book so then it became this project that the four of us were doing and we worked for two three years uh, you know because this wasn't a paid uh, thing or anything so between earning and finding time we sort of four of us from bombay worked together and there's one published it so that's how more close came about so how did you fund the travels like was it from your personal savings for the first initial uh, set of travels uh, uh, we got a small uh, 
funding grant from uh, I forget the name, but it was what is called an activist research mm. uh, grant. So it was a small grant which basically covered all our travel. So uh, you know, uh, and uh, some sort of uh, thing for travels of uh, participants if they needed it. So all the so we didn't have to spend that. Uh, I think it was basically the time that we put in was not paid for, but our travels were covered. So we had a small act and a printing of the English they were covered. So that was crucial for us. That we wouldn't have, uh, you know, we would have raised money otherwise to uh, print them. But that was covered. So that was nice. And we were able to therefore also give away lots of copies of reports to everybody. And of course, we put it online. And I'm just wondering, like, this is of course a collaborative project, unlike your, um, you know, children's books. But is there a different kind of audience here that you uh, or others, um, uh, Raj Merchant, Chernika, Shah, were trying to reach out? Or would you see the parallels between your uh, research and your, you know, uh, seemingly like more creative uh, pursuits? Hmm, that's a very interesting question. Uh, so, okay, there were four writers, uh, Smriti Nevitya, Chanika Shah, Raj Merchant, and me. So, uh, I think that, you know, the research was also, according to me, a very creative process because, you know, before that, the only research I had done, before I joined activism, I had the research I'd done, I come from a background in literature. So, you know, your research is a very different thing altogether. <laughs> Mm. All right, but uh, when I sort of was part of groups, I remember doing other activist research projects. You know, with other groups I was part of. When the dance bars in Bombay were banned in two thousand five, we did uh, a quick research project to talk to uh, the people working in dance bars, uh, mostly women and some uh, trans uh, people. And so, you know, we've done those kinds of activist researches. What was amazing about those processes, but especially about this one, was also that doing research as a collective and figuring out what you want to do, doing your readings as collectives, reading as much material as you can and getting to that is a highly creative and beautiful process because you actually end up, instead of having to think through everything on yourself, which a lot of our, you know, academic research teaches us, right? Mm-hmm. And having to worry about your sources and so on and so forth. What you're doing here is you're trying to create knowledge. Right? You're reading up, you're talking to each other. And in that talking to each other and trying ideas out with each other, you're actually creating something. So it's a very creative process. So I found the research as well as the writing of it very creative process. Also, we worked for a very long time together. So, you know, at the end of the writing of the book, when it was over, None of us could say that what sentence was theirs and what was somebody else's because each of us worked on each of it so much together. So it was a very different experience than writing a book alone, you know. But equally joyous, equally creative and uh, equally frustrating, you know. Uh, Because when you are alone, you are stuck, you are frustrated only at yourself. When you are together, then, uh, you know, sometimes you are stuck and frustrated but Sometimes you talk to each other and something uh, comes out which you individually could never think of. Right. So, uh, 
it's a different process but i would say that it's even though it's non fiction and it's a book for adults it's yeah i think the processes of the research and writing of a creative i in fact i would i cannot imagine doing research alone at Oh. And, and I'm assuming that uh, I don't know if I know that uh, Chinika Shah was also part of uh, Labia, but I'm not sure about others. So I'm assuming that there was a degree of familiarity, you know. Yes, no, all four of us were part of Labia. Oh. So basically, the eleven people who did the research together, of them, then four of us decided that we'll take it further because the four of us had both the inclination and time to do that. So uh, that's what. So the four of us were from the earlier process. We've been part of the process from the beginning, but we had the inclination and the time also. So we said, okay, we will work further on it. Yeah. And I'm I'm thinking like you know the your and this is not a question but just a comment because I'm going to I I can see that we are out of time. But your children's books are more about like growing up and how adults can not maybe interfere but just support. uh children and here i can see a lot about collaboration and also maybe uh growing old uh together uh-huh. and okay. and i hope to see more of your research as well as your children's books if you can call them children's books or maybe you can <laughs> call them you know books so um thank you so much but do you have any last comment or observation Uh no thank you this has been quite wonderful and uh, you know I didn't think I would uh, you know I'm very actually what I realized while talking to you that the sort of uh, kind of uh, understanding one has which has come through working in queer trans feminist lives and with people has actually you know the same understanding that comes to uh, the research writing or writing of gender outlook also actually comes to the writing of my children's books you know mm-hmm. or the books for children and adults right uh, so i think it's kind of actually been really fun talking to you and i hope that uh, there are more books on the horizon and uh, but i'm a very slow lazy writer but i hope that there'll be a few more in the next few years but this has been really fun and uh, yeah thank you so much for this thank you so much for taking out time um out of your busy schedule Thank you so much